and welcome to Jericho Ditching the Dirt. We're your hosts Fiona and Lynn and we are MA Museum and Artifact Studies students from Durham University. This podcast series has been created by us students as part of our online exhibition titled Jericho, an Ancient City Revealed in partnership with Durham's Oriental Museum. If you've not visited our exhibition yet, but you're interested in learning more about ancient Jericho and its excavations, do check it out through the link in our podcast bio. The views and opinions provided within this podcast series in no way seek to represent Durham University or the Oriental Museum. We have produced this content for the sole benefit of our exhibition and its wider audiences. In today's podcast, we have been fortunate enough to interview Felicity Cobbing, Chief Executive and Curator of the Palestine Exploration Fund, or PEF. In our online exhibition, we touched upon the excavations conducted at Jericho prior to Captain Canyon, which included those by Charles Warren in 1868, Ernest Sellen and Carl Wasinger in 1907 and 1911, and John Garstam between 1930 to 1936. The PEF played a vital role within those excavations as an organizational and funding body. Having excavated throughout the Middle East and having joined the PEF in 1998, Felicity has a brilliant understanding of archaeology and its history in the Levant. She'll be talking to us about the PEF, its interest in Jericho, and the excavations of Charles Warren and John Garstang. So, let's get digging. Hello, my name's Shona, and I will be conducting the interview today on behalf of the rest of my team. Just to let you know, this interview was recorded remotely via an online platform, so I would just like to apologise in advance for any discrepancies in audio quality. It's an absolute delight to introduce Felicity Cobbing to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. During our exhibition, we talked about primarily Kathleen Kenyon, but we also mentioned the past excavations at, at um, Jericho, and, and Charles Warren was sort of the first excavator. But he was focused on excavating Jerusalem at the time and developing a topographical map of the region. So despite that lack of focus on Jericho specifically, how important or significant do you think Warren's work is or was it at Jericho at the time? Well, at first glance, it's not that significant. He only spent a couple of days there. He didn't enjoy it very much. He found mud brick, which is what Jericho is made out of. Rather, he didn't understand it at all. He found it difficult to work with. The salts in the soil in, in the tell, because we're below sea level there, there's a lot of salt in the soil, meant that as soon as any pots were exposed, they crumbled into dust because the salt crystals expanded and then broke the pots. The, the, the pots had absorbed all that salt over the years and then was exposed to the air. They, the crystals formed and broke the pots. So um, he didn't like it very much. But what he was able to establish was really a fundamental thing which completely transformed our way of looking at the landscape of Palestine, Jordan, Israel in terms of its archaeology. And that's because he identified the tell, the mound of Jericho, as a human artifact, not a natural feature. Up until that point, people had assumed that they were kind of remnants of an ancient seabed in the Jordan Valley. But actually, Warren's work identified this as a man-made site, and therefore you could apply that to all the other tells in the Jordan Valley, and also elsewhere in the region, up in the hills, on, uh, in the Judean hills, in Moab, wherever you are looking, there are these tells all over the place, these mounds. And all of a sudden, they were sites to be explored, <laughs> not just looked at and ignored. Um, so moving on to sort of another past excavation, John Garstangs to be specific. Why did Garstangs sort of decide to excavate to Jericho? 
Well, there had been one excavation previous to his big excavation, that of Ernst Selling and Karl Watzinger. It was a German project before the First World War, which was a big excavation. Why did Garstang choose Jericho? I think the reason is, is a lot of what we've said before, it's extremely iconic as a site in terms of, they didn't necessarily, they knew a bit because of what Watzinger and Selin had done, but the biblical story obviously was a key motivator, I think, for Garstang. He was interested in the Bible. How devoutly religious he was, I don't really know, but he was definitely interested in the biblical texts at a scholarly level. And Jericho, of course, is a site which we all know from the biblical story of the Battle of Jericho, Joshua's invasion. And so I think for him, it had that kind of wow factor. I think also because of that, he knew he could get sponsorship for it. This is very, very important. And this is something which is a, a factor in all manner of different projects right up until now, is if there is the Bible in it somewhere, you're more likely to get a sponsor. So what what sort of just generally, what was Garstang sort of like as a person, if that's something that you can extrapolate from sources? Yeah, I mean, we don't have anything except at the PEF, we don't have anything except the archives to do with his work. So we don't see much of him as a cuddly human being, as it were, um, just his work notes and so on. But from, from that, I think you can see a few things. He was, first and foremost, he was extremely clever. He was the youngest professor of archaeology ever at Liverpool University at the age of 26. So no pressure. He was, I think, extremely thorough and scientific in his approach. His first degree was in mathematics. So I think you, he's coming from a very analytical, very scientific background into archaeology. And we see in his records that we have at the PEF, a very methodical person working, someone who is trying to employ perhaps interesting methodologies involving statistics and so on and so forth, not necessarily successfully, but you know, that he's, he's pushing those, those kind of methodological boundaries. He is someone who's a team player. He works really well with other people. So he and a couple of other really important people, Père Vincent at the École Biblique and William Foxwell Albright at the American Schools of Oriental Research, both in Jerusalem, those three work together to really kind of devise a system for understanding the, the chronology of the material culture of Palestine and the Holy Land. And they, they work a way in which to put it into the three-age system of bronze, iron, stone, bronze and iron age. Prior to that, people were calling the different periods by what they decided they quite liked the, the sound of. So one person's Canaanite could be another person's Amorite or so on and so forth. And you can see how it could get quite messy in terms of terminologies. So what they did in the 1920s and 30s was establish a kind of, okay, this is the canon. This is how we're going to call things from now on. It's boring, but it works more or less. And so let's go for it. So he's a team player. I think there is a real interest, as I say, scholarly, perhaps more personal in the biblical narratives and the historicity of them. But he's not an ideologue. He doesn't 
bang on about it and he doesn't necessarily stop it from getting in the way of that analytical brain of his and we'll maybe touch on why that matters a little bit later we've got a lot of photos of him and his wife who's very smiley and I think he was a nice enough man you know we've also got a couple of photos of him which I think demonstrate he had a sense of humor <laughs> and so I don't I think he was quite personable and he was a fantastic administrator so one of the reasons why he was in Palestine was that he was employed before the Jericho dig. He was the first director of the Department of Antiquities in the Mandate period in Palestine. Simultaneously, he was the first director of the British School of Archaeology at Jerusalem. So he was hardworking, he was a great administrator, and he was also, I think, a part of the establishment. We have a photo of him showing the kind of high echelons of mandate government hobnobbing people around his first excavation in the region which was at Ashkelon on the coast in the early 1920s and he was definitely in with that kind of with the government crowd so I think that he was a team player he was a nice enough bloke he was extremely methodical <laughs> and he he was very much appreciated by the powers that be. Um, so in our exhibition, we do understand that Garstang is considered a pioneer of administrative practices. He kept extensive detailed records of the excavations and good quality photographs. But is there sort of anything else that sort of sets his excavations apart? There are two things. At Jericho, there are two things specifically. I'll start on the good before I move on to the not quite so good. And the good is that he was the one who really exposed those very early Neolithic levels, those ones that are connected with what's often called the agricultural revolution, the move of human society away from a kind of transhuman, nomadic, pastoralist life towards something more settled based on the growing of crops and the rearing of livestock. So uh, that was a really, really important discovery for the role that the that Palestine, Israel, Jordan, that part of the world was playing in this fundamentally important part of human evolution. And this takes place around 8000 BC. Now, Garstang uncovered quite a lot about that period. He didn't date it correctly. He got it, he, he was putting it about, you know, 6000 BC, a bit too late. We would date those things to about eight or ninth millennium BCE. He uncovered quite a lot about that, that period and started to define it. Also those ritual elements with the, the lime plaster statues that are, were excavated subsequently on other excavations at other sites as well. And also what the first, I think the first of what's become known as the Jericho skulls, which again are actual skulls from people, dead people, which were taken off the body, covered with a lime plaster, decorated, with ochre, shells in labelled the eyes, bitumen, the details, and so on and so forth. And you've got elements of these, these strange artefacts that suggest a kind of development of a religion or a ritual framework, perhaps centred on a kind of ancestor cult worship, that kind of thing. We don't really know. We're hypothesising madly here, but that's, um, you know, our best guess. The second thing, which Garstang has become famous or perhaps infamous for 
is the um, his his declaration that he had found the walls that Joshua had destroyed when the Israelites invaded Canaan and began their take their, their occupation of the Holy Land. And I think it ties in with the whole thing of sponsorship and where you can find your money and the wishes of the sponsor. His sponsor was a guy called Sir Charles Master, who was an industrialist based in Wolverhampton and was a real firebrand evangelical Bible thumper who firmly believed that the Bible was true in absolutely every respect and saw archaeology as a very, very useful way to demonstrate that. Garstang was looking at the archaeology with all the tools that anyone, anyone else had at that time in terms of observation and recording, understanding of stratigraphy, understanding of pottery. And he was no better and no worse than anyone else working in the field at the same time. And you have to understand this mistake in that context, that this was not like a stupid harebrained decision that he came to. What he found, first of all, is that on the site you have some very, very big double-walled ramparts on the top of the tell, this mound. And these have been destroyed again and again and again. And these are the walls that Garstang identified as Joshua's walls. Now, because they were at the top of the tell, he thought, okay, well, that marks the end of this, the history of the site. And so he saw a continuous occupation running through from the Middle Bronze Age, so from the second millennium, uh, 2,600 to 1,600 BC, right the way through to the Late Bronze Age, to around about, I think he puts the final uh, destruction at around 1385 BC. And the reason for that is because in some parts of the site, the material, there was a small amount of material from that Late Bronze Age phase, which then collapsed into the rooms that predated them. But what Garstang didn't see was the erosion and the silting in between those two events, let's say the destruction of the Middle Bronze Age and the collapse of that very small later Bronze Age material into that Middle Bronze Age context. And so he conflated, and so he saw two, two, a whole series of occupation uninterrupted going all the way through. But what Garstang was not understanding was the kind of contours, the landscape of the tell itself. Now, at Jericho, you have a very complex archaeology, very complex stratigraphy, where you have the multiple layers of successive occupation, one on top of the other at the tell site. But it's not even. There's erosion. There are earthquakes. There's lots of rebuilding within short periods of time. And it's, it's a little bit up and down as well. So... It's not like a, a Victoria sponge, or at least not one that you'd buy in the shop. It's probably more like one that I would make with it being sunken in the middle and then all the rest of it and a bit wibbly wobbly. And the archaeology follows those contours. And as a result, it's complicated. So you can't look at things as if they're on a level. You have to understand that, that internal topography when you're looking at the stratigraphy. And that's something that he didn't do, which, were, which was what Kenyon picked up on. Now. This was fantastic for his sponsor and absolutely, you know, headline news and all the rest of it. But he wasn't quite happy with that. And we have a postcard in the PEA where a visitor to the sites has a photograph of those same walls. And on the back, he's, he's um, scribbled, you know, these are Joshua's walls. Prof G is not convinced of this. 
so right from the beginning he knew that something wasn't quite up and I think that it was really the role of that very very powerful influential sponsor that may have kind of shoehorned in into making that that identification against his better judgment now what Kenyon was able to do was recognize those periods of erosion and silting which mark abandonment so she was able to put 150 years in between the end of the Middle Bronze Age, which was when the site was destroyed, and also the Late Bronze Age settlement, which was much smaller in that kind of 1385 period. The other thing was that because she had such a good eye on the stratigraphy, she was able to actually look again at the stratigraphy relating to those walls on the rampart, which Garstang had associated with Joshua. And when she looked at it, she realized, taking into account the topography of the site, that in fact, they weren't late Bronze Age walls, they were early Bronze Age walls. They date to the third millennium BC. That's, you know, 5,000 years ago to the very first phases of urban settlement in terms of a really big proper city. So a huge discrepancy in time, and one that would mean that the scenario of an Israelite invasion into Canaan would be absolutely impossible. Thank you. That's so interesting about the late Bronze Age um, collapse into earlier settlements, because I know in our exhibition, you know, we, we do have a section where we talk about the different layers and different phases of occupation and things. And we don't really have anything in the collection that's from the late Bronze Age. So it is it's interesting to see that, you know, that that's because it did just collapse. Yeah, I mean, the late Bronze Age phase is very, very small, but it just so happens that Garstang managed to happen on the very, very small bit of late Bronze Age that there is, and therefore come to that conclusion that there was continuous occupation throughout. Now, what there was ended up in the, in the Middle Bronze Age palace. <laughs> and you can see, you can see, if you don't have that kind of precision eye, necessarily you don't have the tools to recognize that kind of the nuances you could easily miss this silting is an erosion how do you spot something that's eroded away the only way you can tell is by looking at the quality of the surface you know in there is does it look like it's been kind of desiccated and degraded and kind of thinned out you can't necessarily spot that very easily because if it's eroded it's gone how do you spot something that's gone you know, so we have to be kind to Garstang. And I think he knew that, so that's the thing is he knew something was up. He knew that he, he had made a mistake, which was why he called Kenyon in. Um, so we understand that Kenyon was brought into Jericho um, in order to in investigate Garstang's dating of the double walls. Um, but did Garstang's excavations have any other sort of impact on Kenyon's work? I think... I mean, I think Garstang was very, very highly respected by Kenyon. She was brought in. He basically got her involved. He was not happy, as I said, with this interpretation, and he knew he was missing something. And so he first of all invited Kenyon to assess his interpretation of the site. And she more or less agreed with him, but thought that it needed further work. And so he basically supported her uh, project right from the beginning. He was very much in favor of her going out because what he knew was that Kenyon had a methodology which was far beyond that which he had at the time. 
in the 19, if you think, okay, so Harstang was digging in the 1930s, Kenyon was digging in the 1950s. And in the 1930s, Kenyon was just starting out on her career as an archeologist in the Middle East. She had trained with the, the wheelers at uh, St. Albans, among other things, Verulonium, and had been very influential and a part of developing what became known as the Wheeler Kenyon method. So this is a very, very controlled way of digging stratigraphically, looking at details in the fine detail. You have to do that in British archeology span because it's, there's not necessarily that much to go on. So every single little bit of evidence matters. And what Kenyon did is she brought that to Palestine, which is absolutely knee deep in evidence. It's just, you go out there for the first time coming from British archeology span and your jaw drops to the ground because you're just, crunching on pots wherever you go it's quite ridiculous and but she brought that level of analysis and detail to looking at the stratigraphic record at a site like Jericho she started off working at Samaria in the 1930s when Garstang was first digging at Jericho and so by the 1950s she'd had a, quite a bit of time to hone her technique to suit that Middle Eastern environment and deploy it with absolutely stunning effects in Jericho. That's really interesting because I don't personally have a background in archaeology. I, I did my undergrad in ancient history. So it's really fascinating to learn about how, you know, there are differences between British and Middle Eastern archaeology. I didn't I didn't really think that there would be. Um but I guess it does seem quite obvious now that 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 there there would be. Yeah, I mean I think it's something that we can honestly say that was really revolutionary. And it's because there's you know, in British archaeology, you really have to be careful not to miss something really, because there's not necessarily that much left. You know, you're looking at perhaps different differences in soil colour to tell you where post holes were and things like that. You go out to the Middle East and that level of being able to see things in the Middle East then gives you so much. Um, we understand that the PEF funded Kenyan excavations at Jericho. Did the PEF have a role beyond just a funding body? At this stage, in the 1950s, we were beginning to kind of, I would say we were beginning to uh, step back from direct field work ourselves. We started in the 1860s. We were the first there. We were the first organisation doing archaeological work as an organisation. Individuals might have had some fun fun times going digging random holes but we were the first people to do it in a kind of set way as an organization so and then things started to evolve so you get the Germans coming along and then you get the Americans coming along and the French coming along and more and more people and then the universities start to get involved and during the mandate period that was really a very interesting time for British archaeology because the British were in control in Palestine they were running the country for this period of time between the two world wars. By the time of Kenyon's excavations, of course, things had changed again. The British mandate period had come to an end. That was because its mandate, which was a UN mandate, the time period of it had come up. That ended in 1948. But also the nation of Israel was established. And so you've got a very, very different kind of framework for any excavations to work in. At the same time, the finances of the PEF, let's say we were less well off, and the costs of archaeology had continued to rise as it had become increasingly professionalised. So 
we kind of thought, well, what can we do that's effective? And funding projects, putting our little, you know, few quid in the pot, as it were, was, was decided to be a more feasible option. And, and actually that is what we've done ever since. And it's been really quite successful. We've managed to seed lots of different projects which have taken off and, and contributed massively to our knowledge of the whole area. So the PEF is an independent organization without government funding. So we were wondering how the pandemic has actually affected the PEF and how it's functioned? Okay, that's a really interesting question. I mean, a lot of places have had some tough times we're not funded by the government. We're an independent organisation, as you said. We are rather an unusual organisation, I think, from the point of view of our finances, because we have benefited from a few incredibly significant donations over the years. Most, most of our money, I would say, comes from those few donations. In terms of our operations, obviously we've not been open, so that means that the kind of things, the work that we would have been doing on our collections and getting our facility ready to open to the public and have researchers round and volunteers doing internships and all those kind of things had to stop, which that's in a way that that's, that is our business as well. But we've been able to do an awful lot in lockdown in terms of developing our new website, moving our lectures what we've done instead of putting lectures online as, as kind of live events we've been doing YouTube interviews a bit like what you're doing today mm -hmm. and developing kind of material that's of interest and of course those projects will continue even after the lockdown's finished and we'll begin adding new information but hopefully sooner rather than later inshallah we'll be able to open up again to the public and increasingly to researchers and volunteers as well. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and really interesting because as part of our MA course, um, we talked extensively about how the pandemic has affected the heritage sector. And it's quite amazing to see, you know, these these trends towards online engagement and increased accessibility and inclusivity and things. They're going to continue, um, if you know, if not expand further. And I think in a way the pandemic has taught us an awful lot about what you can do that people are very you know, enthusiastic about, even if they can't come and visit you in person, they can access you online, and then they can access your knowledge or your facilities, your, your collections. And so it's been a really, really useful learning experience for us. And uh, yeah, we hope to continue building on that, absolutely. Um, so we just wanted to end with learning about how our listeners can get involved with the PEF and how we can get involved as well. <laughs> okay um well i mean the main thing is go to our website and then you will find my email address or the email address of my colleague ava and you can contact us if you want to volunteer i have to say at the moment it's still we're still moving very carefully because we're not out of the woods yet but we do see training as it were for students as part of our remit as charity so we're very happy to consider volunteers. We've also been able to do things remotely as well. During lockdown, we had one of our interns was, was uh, based in the US and uh, she wrote blogs for us. We sent her material, downloaded it, <laughs> and uh, she wrote some blogs on, on things in our collections. Um, so that's another way that you can get involved. It doesn't just have to be in person. We can do things remotely as well. People can contact us if they're researchers, they're interested in something which we may be able to help with in terms of material from our collections. And again, if they can't come in person, 
we can get those things digitized and we can send digital copies uh, to people wherever they are in the world. You can also apply for a research grant if you've got that sexy project that just needs, you know, 500 more quid to make it fly. Then, you know, our, our research grants run um, in the autumn. So we advertise them in late November, early December, and the closing date is in February. And then they're announced a few weeks later in March. There are articles that you can write for our journal, which is PEQ. That's a peer-reviewed journal. You can also write a monograph if you've finished your excavation project and are looking for a publication, looking to get it published, you can publish it in our monograph. So there are all sorts of ways to, to engage with the PEF. And we hope as well that those will broaden out as the years go on. Of course, you can also contribute to our YouTube channel and our online interviews and things like that. So yeah, whatever takes your fancy. <laughs> fantastic thank you so much i think that's actually that's all the questions we have today so thank you so much my pleasure thank you for listening to this episode of jericho ditching the dirt we hope you enjoyed it we'd like to take this opportunity to thank felicity cobbing for allowing us to interview her as well as the pef for their invaluable contributions towards our online exhibition if you're keen to learn more about ancient jericho archaeologist kathleen kenyon or archaeology in general then please do visit our online exhibition Jericho and Ancient City Revealed, and have a listen to our other podcast episodes. If you take a look at the transcript for our podcast, you will find a list of other online resources if you wish to learn more about the PEF. We also welcome you to follow Durham's Oriental Museum on social media, as we have put up a few posts related to our exhibition. We also recommend taking a look at their website and other online exhibitions, and to visit the museum when you next have the opportunity. Thank you once again, and we hope to speak to you soon.